work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the nine to five with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, or around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or a traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, we choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship, and Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on Mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship. What's up, Seacoast? Good morning. Uh, yes, the topic today is work. And, uh, well, my name is Matt, and it is a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to once again come up and teach out of God's Word. I really do believe that God has something specific that He wants to say to each and every one of us this morning, especially because work is something that's so integrated into who we are and what we do. You know, let's be honest, work is very much a big part of all of our lives. And we all have a relationship with work. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at, uh, or in, our, in our series, Relate, and we've been going through Ephesians 5 and 6, and we've been talking about different relationships. We started with husbands and wives, and we went... We talked about parents and children, and today we're going to be tackling the topic of our work relationships. You know, if you aren't uh, married and you don't have kids, it might have been easy to just be like, oh, I'm going to check out during the husbands and wives talk. You know, kids talk, I don't know, maybe one day I'll be there. But I would say today, this one, this one across the board really applies to all of us. 
Even if you're retired, even if you're, you know, you're self-employed, whatever, work is something that is so a part of our human existence. And so no matter where you're at, I just want to invite you to lean in today. So let's start out with a number. That's a big number. <laughs> 97,760. So I know that for some of you guys, that number looks like the amount of unread emails in your inbox. It's like, oh. <laughs> for others of you, there, it's maybe for some of you, that's the amount of likes that you got on Instagram when you posted that really cool picture of that acai bowl. Just, everyone loved it. But... uh so that's a big number. It's an important number. Why? Well, 97,760 is the amount of hours the average person will spend in their lifetime at work. It's a long time. So if you want to fact check me, here's the math that I did. I said, so from 18 to 65 years old, working just 40 hours a week, you'll spend more than one third of your life at work. So work is where we spend a majority of our time. And so it wouldn't make sense for us just to, to completely ignore that big of a chunk of our life. And neither does God. And that's what we see in Scripture today. God does not ignore that, that size of a chunk. And what I love about today is that once again we see that there is no area of life that is too big or too mundane that Jesus doesn't want to invade and redeem. He's interested in it all. You see, the Christian gospel is not an ethereal formula unrelated to daily living. The gospel informs and transforms all of life. It informs and uh, transforms our marriages. It informs and transforms our relationship with our parents and with parents with their kids. And it informs and transforms our relationship at work with our coworkers, with our boss with work itself. You know, there's a misconception out there in Christian circles that where we divide life into the, you know, the sacred and the secular, the, and we think that God's only interested in the spiritual things in life. We think God's only interested in what we do on Sunday mornings or, or throughout the week in our life group, in our Bible studies. It's a misconception that divides various uh, divides life into various compartments. But what we see in Scripture is actually radically different. We find in Scripture that God is interested in all of you, every area of your life. To Him, to God, all of life is spiritual. So I'm pretty sure that we have probably the whole spectrum here. You know, there's some of you that just love your job, you love work, you're so excited about it. There's some of you that absolutely hate it. I've talked to many of you. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch in between that are just indifferent. And so again, wherever you're at today, I just want to encourage you to allow God's word just to speak to your current situation, wherever you're at. So let's jump into our text today. Go ahead and turn or tap your way to Ephesians 6. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 8. Uh, verse 9 goes, it's, in, it's a part of this in most of your Bibles, but Ryan's going to be taking that one on next week. 
So let me read this. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Apostle Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Pray with me. God, Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning, Lord, that we would be able to see you in bigger and brighter ways. Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you would come, you would invade and make the gospel real to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand in a clearer way, your plan and purpose for us as we go about our days working. Lord, we need you. Lord, And we, we pray that you would help us to see and to experience the freedom that is already ours in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, I think... To start things out this morning, I think we have to deal with the elephant in the room, or the elephant in the text. Uh, you know, I've, I'm talking about work and work, and then all of a sudden we read this and it says slaves. And so I think there's a little bit, I mean, we have to say something about that. And so, you know, because one of the questions that comes up with this is, you know, the Bible said slaves. Paul, he mentioned slaves, so are we to conclude that Christianity, or that Paul, is condoning Slavery? And the quick answer to that is no. Uh, and I don't have a whole lot of time to um, talk through this, but there are a few things that we can know just about the context. And so what are those things that we need to know? Did a little research. And so I think we need to, un- first of all, we need to understand that slavery was uh, a huge part of the social and the economic fabric during the time in which Paul lived and which in that time he was writing. I read one commentary that estimated that in the Roman Empire at this time, there was probably 60 million slaves, which means that roughly half the population was in slavery, enslaved to the other half of the population. You know, slaves, they, they constituted the workforce. And yeah, they, it included household servants, it included uh, manual laborers, but it also included educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, administrators. Slaves, yes, slaves were viewed as property. They could be purchased, they could be inherited. And the crazy thing about this is that during this time, nobody questioned or challenged this arrangement. It was just an accepted thing. You know, sometimes a slave situation was quite good, yet there also could be times where there was terrible abuse. The fact that there were some slaves that ran away. You know, we have that in the New Testament. There's the book of Philemon, which kind of documents this one runaway slave named Onesimus. But the fact that some slaves ran away, risking if they were caught to be, they would, would have been branded, flogged, even executed, while others committed suicide. I mean, just the fact that that was happening is kind of sufficient evidence to, to know that this was a widespread problem, the abuse of slaves. And I know to us, you know, for us, we live in a, in a country where slavery has been abolished more than a, um, a century and a half. 
And so for us, it might be a little bit hard to understand, like, how could this ever have been the case? I mean, it'd be hard, it's kind of hard for us to conceive how ownership of one human being by another was ever acceptable. And it's even harder to understand how slaves could have been treated more as, as a thing than a person. It's interesting, for all of his intellect and uh, culture, Aristotle was quoted, um, well, he couldn't contemplate any friendship between slave and slave owner. Like slaves and slave owners, there's no friendship. He was quoted as saying, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So this is the mindset. This is the culture in which Paul is living. This is the mindset in which he is writing. And in a culture where slaves are considered nothing, it's actually even more remarkable that Paul would even say anything to slaves at all in his letter. I mean, that in and of itself was a very radical thing. The simple fact that he does so, it indicates that the slaves that he is writing to were accepted members of the Christian community, which was probably unheard of at the time. So it's important for us to see that Paul's, his chief concern as he's writing in this, in this passage is not to abolish slavery. Although I would argue that the implications of the gospel, the implications of the teaching that all men are created in God's image is what ultimately destroyed slavery and continues to transform relationships today. But if we're expecting Paul to, to be answering the questions about the legitimacy, the illegitimacy of slavery, we're going to miss the point. We're going to miss what, he's, uh, what he really has to say to us. So he doesn't condemn or condone Slavery, because what Paul has to say in this passage goes far beyond slavery. What we are going to find today is that Paul is way more interested in the heart of the worker than he is in the fact of slavery. Paul's concern is that the gospel would shape the heart of the worker wherever you are. Whatever your situation, whether you're slave or free, and so it's the nature of a Christian's work, not slavery, that is Paul's chief concern in this passage. And so I think it's very, that's important for us because while this text was originally written to slaves and those in authority over them, I, we can perfectly apply these principles into our context, into our social, social system with employees and employers. And that's what we're going to do today. So that's all the time we have for the slavery question. Uh, but the key thing is that Paul's concern is that the gospel would shape the heart of the worker wherever you are. So let's do this. Let's jump in. I want to look at three things today. First question I want to talk about is just what kind of workers are we to be? As we read through this text, we're going to learn what kind of workers are we to be. The second thing is where do we find the power to be the workers that we're called to be? So first, what kind of workers are we called to be? Then where do we find the power to actually do that? And then third, I want to talk about what are the results? What happens when that's lived out? So first, what kind of workers are we to be? Let's take a look at verse 5. Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So what kind of worker are we to be? Well, obedient. Let's pray, and we'll close. (laughs) 
I mean, to obey, simply put, means to do what you're told, to do your job. Perform the task that you were hired to do. Now, that seems pretty clear, and I would say even doable. But it's the next part that really bothers me, and maybe it'll bother you too. He explains and defines what kind of obedience he's talking about. He says, obedience with fear and, and trembling, which essentially means with respect. He says it needs to be sincere. The word sincere suggests that employees should not hold back um, his best, but he actually should pour himself out freely in honest service. Oh, and to do so from the heart. It's like, come on, Paul. I mean, if it's just obedience, to tell me to obey, like, that's fine. That's, I can probably do that. But to say that it has to be respectful, it has to be so sincere, it has to be from the heart, I mean, that's, that's asking a little bit too much. But it's a mistake for us to think that God is only interested in our, our disinclined and reluctant obedience. Like, fine, whatever, I'll do it. Whatever, okay, whatever. As if that's pleasing to God, like just, the, oh, we're, we're doing it. But that's not the obedience that God's interested in. That's not the kind of obedience that he demands and requires. The kind of obedience that God wants and requires is obedience from the heart. You know, the focus on the heart in Paul's letter here is very consistent to what Jesus talked about. I don't know, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? You can read it in Matthew 19. This rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he wants to ask him a question. He wants to say, hey, Jesus, how do I gain eternal life? What do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus says, well, obey the law. Follow the commands in the law. And the rich young ruler is like, I've done that. I've, you know, is that it? I've done that. And Jesus, he says, I've kept all the commands. Then I love it. Jesus goes for the jugular. He, he says, okay, okay. If you want to be perfect, go sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the story is, is that the rich young ruler walked away feeling really sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus wasn't, he's interested in more than this guy's, his mere obedience, his compliance to the law. He wanted his heart. So the obedience that we're called to give, our employers ought to be respectful. It ought to be sincere from the heart. And, uh, and from the heart, and so, but there's more. But wait, there's more. In verse 6, he, just, he goes on to describe the brand of obedience. He says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So not only do we need to be respectful and sincere and have it from the heart, it needs to be consistent when the boss isn't looking. And I don't know, this one's, this one's tough. Most of us have been, have, our entire lives have gotten really good at managing people's perceptions of us. We're really good at doing the right thing when people are watching. When the opinions of those people who matter to us, when they're around and stuff, we are really good at doing the right thing. But what happens when there's nobody around? What kind of workers 
do, do we become? You know, it's one thing to be the eager beaver going above and beyond when the boss is watching. It's a whole other thing. Uh, but what happens when nobody is watching? One of my very first jobs was at Vons. It's a great institution. Uh, and I was a courtesy clerk, a.k.a. bagger. <laughs> like, you're, no, you're a courtesy clerk. And part of my job was inside the store, you know, bagging, you know, just being a, I, th- I, th- I thought it was great. I was just, you know, welcoming people as they're coming through the line, bagging everything. I'm a Tetris champion, so everything was like perfect. <laughs> and then, uh, and the boss, the manager was always walking around, and, you know, I was, I was doing a good job. But then the other part of my job was outside, collecting the carts that you guys put in the, everywhere in the world. I felt like a shepherd trying to go collect my lost sheep as I walked around. And one day, as I was collecting carts in the parking lot, I came across the cart, and there was a little bag inside, a plastic bag, I opened it up, and there was like, there were about three or four packs of cigarettes inside this bag, in this cart, in the parking lot. And I was like, I'm 16 years old. I'm like, it's not every day you find that. (laughs) This is pretty cool. So I kind of meandered over to my car where I was parked. I was like, carts, carts. And just as I like closed the door, this guy comes up to me out of nowhere. I don't know. I think it was like an undercover security. I don't know who he was, but he he came up to me and said, "I've been watching you the whole time." And that merchandise, you, you're stealing that merchandise, and so I'm reporting you to your manager. And I was like, uh, I was like, uh, uh. and anyways, no, honestly, the thought that I had was, it's a trap. And anyways, I ended up getting fired that day. But, I mean, just, we all have these examples in our life where we're doing the right thing when the right people are around, and then on our own, you know, we're we're stealing cigarettes. (laughs) So, so, (laughs) our obedience... Is to be respectful, sincere from the heart, and consistent. You know, it doesn't matter who's watching. And then we're told in verse 7, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Paul's emphasizing that we are to do our job with, with our heart and soul, with good will, with our heart and our soul. And so I don't know about you guys, but this list is starting to feel very intense. It's starting to raise the bar. It's starting to make me feel uncomfortable. Especially considering the fact that Paul doesn't give any disclaimer as to the kind of boss that we're to obey. This one's going to be hard for a lot of us. Because he's not saying to obey respectfully, sincerely, from the heart, consistently, with your heart and soul, when you have a good boss. He's saying that you do, we are called to do these things regardless of the kind of boss that we have. In fact, the Apostle Peter affirms this. In 1 Peter 2.18, he writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to, the, to those who are unreasonable. So this is an extremely high calling for us. Again, it's not mere compliance that Paul and God is calling us to. 
It's obedience that is all of those things, respectful, sincere, and consistent, done from the heart. Again, the issue is the heart, the heart of the worker. And we're called to live this out regardless of the kind of boss we have. And that's not easy, especially with my boss. (laughs) No, Ryan, love you, bro. So let me ask, is anybody actually pulling this off? Is anyone actually making it happen? You know, reading this description and, and seeing it for what it is, it actually, yeah, it can be, have a motivating effect. You can be like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be that. But I, if I'm being honest, it actually is not so much motivational. It really, it exposes how far short I fall. It's like, I'm failing. If that's what we're called to, I'm failing big time. You know, in fact, Paul's commands here uh, for heartfelt obedience expose a variety of problems going on in our hearts. And today I just want to look at two, two problems. The first one is the tendency that we have to be idle in our work. You know, a lot of us have, we go to work and we have that punch in, punch out mentality. We have uh, what is called slackivism. I don't know if that's a word or not, but... The art of being a slacker, uh, which it's the measures taken by a person to only do the minimum required to get through the day. You know, a lot of us, idleness, it can lead to a I'm just working to live mentality. We just view work as a necessary evil, something that we have to do. You know, how many of us struggle with Mondays? You know, how many of us talk about the Monday blues? where we believe real life comes to an end when we have to go to work. This is all the product of idleness and idle thinking. And, you know, idle doesn't necessarily mean being inactive or having a lack of productivity. Paul is concerned with the heart. So idleness can also be inactivity of the heart. It can be an inability or an unwillingness to see and embrace God's purposes in your work and the work that he's given you to do. So I think when, when idleness and this kind of mindset begins to, to take place in our minds, the results are devastating. Side effects may include despondency, joylessness, complaining, discontentedness, laziness, passivity, people-pleasing, score-settling, corner-cutting, and Monday-dreading gloom. So these are the fruits of being idle in our work. So that's one problem that we can fall into. The second problem that we can fall into when it comes to our work is the tendency to make an idol of our work. And I know we hear the word idol, and we're all sophisticated people, right? So, you know, we think of little wooden or golden statues across the, you know, in different civilizations and, you know, different religions. We don't have idols, right? We're too good for that. But according to the Bible, an idol is anything that we worship other than God himself. Idolatry is centering our attention and our affection on something or someone smaller than God. An idol is anything that we look to, to provide for us what only Jesus can provide. You know, in fact, most of our idols are really good things, like our jobs. Our jobs are good things. 
But most of our idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. Things that we that take God's place as we unconsciously depend on them to give our lives meaning, to give our lives security. So for many of us, our work, our success, our performance has become that thing that we've come to trust in in order to gain the acceptance, to gain the approval, to give our life meaning, or to make life worth living. And here's the problem. It's like work was never designed, never intended to provide our hearts with the satisfaction and the significance that we crave. I like how Tim Keller says it. He says, if work is your identity, success will go to your head and failure will go to your heart. If work is your identity, success will go to your head, failure will go to your heart. You know, expecting my work to fulfill my deepest longings, it's a little bit like expecting my, my little scooter to be a motorcycle. So Ryan got a motorcycle recently, and he parks it where I, where I park my scooter. <laughs> I, I pull it up, and it's like, pull in, and then I hear Ryan like, take off, and he's like, <laughs> so expecting my scooter to be a motorcycle? I mean, that's a recipe for just frustration. So, you know, it was never designed to be anything but a little scooter. And so once I realize and I, I see my scooter for what it is, better than a bike, I can, I can actually enjoy it. And so it, it's the same thing. So at the heart of these two problems, idleness in work, idolatry of work, is the belief that we need to save ourselves or that it's up to us to make our life worth living. Here's the thing. When we, when we be- live believing that our meaning and our value in life is riding on our shoulders, there's no way we'll ever be able to serve others unconditionally. There's no way. There's no way we'll ever be able to obey with respect, with sincerity, with from our heart, with consistency, heart and soul. There's no way that we'll ever be able to do that if we forget. So, so what's the solution? Where do we find the power to live this out? So I think Paul offers some great hope in this passage. I just want to point out two things. The first one is embedded in every verse that we've read so far, and that is Jesus. Did you guys notice that? Jesus is mentioned in each of these verses. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart with good will. Render service as to the Lord and not to men. I just love that. And I, I think Paul is reminding us in no uncertain terms that who we ultimately work for is Jesus. Our work is not something that we do in addition to our growth as a follower of Christ. Our work here and now is an expression of our Christian faith. Paul also wrote a very similar passage to the church. Um, In Colossians 3.23, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. 
You know, so many of us, we live life with just a horizontal mindset. All we see is just what's horizontally. It's just our, it's our job, you know, our, our boss, our, the coworkers. It's all here. But Paul is telling us that there's a vertical reality and that this vertical reality is meant to shape and to inform the horizontal. He's saying our real boss is found by looking vertically. Jesus is your true and better boss. And guess what? Your real boss, Jesus, he's crazy about you. He loves you. Paul calls us slaves of Christ, and when you really think about it, being a slave to Christ is actually the essence of freedom. As a slave to Christ, you will never, ever be able to escape or run away from his love. You know, we all crave affirmation and approval from other people. And the gospel tells us that all the approval, all the acceptance, all of the validation that we long for and that we look for is already ours in Christ. As Christians, we live, we find our our identity by looking vertical, not horizontal. Because Jesus, he came, he was sent by God to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. Jesus lived the perfect life. Everywhere that we failed, Jesus succeeded. And the approval that he received from his Father in heaven, the ultimate stamp of approval and perfect righteousness, is given to those, who, those of us who believe in Christ. So if you have come to trust Christ, know that you already have the approval of your real boss. You know, if you are in Christ, you already have everything that you need. And what this means is that you're free to spend your life giving instead of taking. Knowing that Jesus is our true and better, better boss, that's the first thing that we, we can find, the first place that we can find power. And the second uh, is found in our final verse, which is a verse, verse 8, which is a future perspective. In verse 8, he, he, Paul writes, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And there's so much packed into that one verse. But I just want to say, essentially, Paul is telling us here that we have nothing to lose. You see, in God's economy, there's, there's no such thing as the unsung hero. He sees it all. And what ultimately, what this means is that for the Christian, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I wonder what would happen if we, if we actually believed that. What kind of freedom would we have? Kind of, how much, how much would that change our workplace, the kind of workers that we are? So what are the results? I'm going to invite the band to come back up on stage right now. But let me just close with this analogy. Um, I'm not much of a poker player, but I do know a few things about poker, uh, a couple things. And I know that when you're dealt a pretty lame hand of cards, you know, the, you either have to pretend you have good cards, you have to bluff your way out, but I know that when I receive a lame hand of cards, I don't ever want to risk anything, any of my chips or money or whatever you're playing with. 
I don't want to risk anything because I've got lame cards. But imagine if you were dealt a royal flush, the best hand that you can get. That changes everything. You're free. When, you're, when you have a, a royal flush, you can go all in. You can risk it all because you know you have the winning hand. Well, in Christ, you and I have been given a winning hand. We don't need to hold back. We don't need to play it safe when it comes to giving of ourselves. We're free to go all in, to serve selflessly. We're free to give it our all. Because I have everything that I need in Jesus, I am, I'm free to use my work for your benefit more than mine. And that's freedom. We're free to obey with respect, sincerity, consistency with all of our hearts. Because when we don't have anything to lose, something wonderful happens. We're free to take great risks without fear or reservation. And everyone, I feel the fight of the Christian faith is the fight to believe that everything we need is already ours in Christ. That's what we're fighting for. That's the faith that we're fighting for. And so this morning, as we sing right now, let's ask God, let's ask him to give us the grace to believe this amazing truth. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, that your word speaks not to, do, not to just things that are, are outside of everyday life, Lord, but your gospel, your truth, it speaks directly to where we're at Lord, that the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross is not something that we just believe in. Oh, once upon a time that happened, okay, great. Lord, it's something that we believe in daily, that we need to believe in daily, and that it sets us free to be the people that you've called us to be. God, that's what we want. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to press down deep into our hearts your love for us, transform us.